0: Welcome to our weird world. I'm your host, John Henson. And this week, just talking about some angry people. Just, you know, just people who are just irrationally angry about, you know, things that they think are a big deal, but probably really aren't a big deal. You know, we probably know those people. Uh, You know, people who tend to get older, real stuck in their ways, just can't understand why the world is leaving them behind. And they feel as though these younger generations are ruining it, even though, for being honest, we're making it better. Uh, You just can't see it, and that's okay. Uh, Before we get going, thank you all for just, you know, all the messages. I get I I do see them obviously I respond to them but um, yeah just it's real nice to know that you're listening and that you're enjoying it and having fun with all the dumb things that I say Uh, so yeah I do I do appreciate that Uh, but otherwise let's jump into our stories this week So we are looking at three stories this week. We're looking at uh, George Metesky, Marvin Heemeyer, and our first story this week is of Carrie Nation, who was born on November 25th, 1846 in a rural part of Kentucky, Um, but she didn't stay there very long. Her family kind of bounced around several places before they finally settled in Missouri, just outside of Kansas City. Um, Her family never really had a lot of financial success, and practically everyone had some form of mental illness, which... Is exactly what you want when you are trying to grow a family. You want you want two people to come together who are completely crazy and say, you know what's the smartest thing we can do right now is make more of us because we need more crazy people running around unattended. And so that is what happened. Um and and like I, and and I don't mean this lightly. All right, Carrie's family was certifiably nuts. All right, for example, Carrie's mother eventually came to believe that she was Queen Victoria, and spent the last years of her life living in a mental hospital. Uh, assumably, uh, kitty, kitty, he's got a bag, and he just just making a bunch of noise. Now he's going to go over here and try to pry the closet door open. Even though he knows that he's not supposed to. Salem. Salem. Bad kitty. As a bad kitty. Salem. Stop it. Be a good boy. I'm trying to record. And you have derailed the show. And I would appreciate it if you didn't do that. Salem. I am so sorry. Uh, <clears throat> about, to, about to beat a cat kid no no it's a bad kid bad kid anyway uh anyway yeah carrie's mother she believed she was queen victoria which was impossible because it just wasn't um in 1865 carrie met a union physician named charles gloyd um carrie's parents actually objected to this relationship and their eventual marriage because gloyd was a raging alcoholic uh, You know, but honestly, like, are you surprised? Shouldn't be. Um, although Carrie defied her family's wishes and married him anyway, the two separated shortly before their daughter's birth in 1868, and then Gloyd actually ended up dying a year later from his alcoholism. Um, this death sparked an intense hatred for alcohol in Carrie, uh, and she decided to devote her entire life to, to campaigning against it, to getting rid of it, you know, and outlawing it forever. Um, After selling the land that she inherited from Gloyd along with money from her, uh, along from money from his estate, Carrie built a small house in Holden, Missouri and moved in with her mother-in-law and then used the rest of the money to attend school and obtain her teaching license. Uh, In 1874, Carrie married David Nation, who was an attorney, a minister, and a journalist who was nearly 20 years older than her. But, you know, wait, that's fine. Age is just a number uh, as long as, you know, both people are legal, of legal age. And honestly, as long as the younger one is, like, pretty far removed (laughs) from, like, 18. Because, like, you can say, like, a 40-year-old married an 18-year-old, and it's legal, still creepy. All right, but if you say uh, a 50-year-old married a 30-year-old, like, it somehow feels more acceptable, and why? Just because both people are older, but I don't know. Anyway, that's just a weird thought to think about. Um, Where are we at? So, uh, Carrie and David, they kind of bounced around Texas working various jobs, but didn't really have much luck. And then uh, David ended up getting involved in the Jaybird Woodpecker War, which not really a war. Kitty, oh my God! Why do you have to play with the catnip now? You never play with it. And now you do. Why? Why? Why does he do this now when I am recording? Couldn't do it the hour before I wasn't recording. No, he's got to do it now. And distracts me. You probably can't even hear it, but now he's just all like wide pupils and like real twitchy and just. <sighs> but guy, he's so cute. Anyway, um, so yeah, this Jaybird Woodpecker War is not like a, not like a real war. It was one of those like political sort of disagreements. Basically, it was, it was a racially charged political conflict between Democrats and Republicans in Texas, where, uh, both sides actually did murder each other. There was some murder in this, but it wasn't like a traditional war in the sense that like two sides lined up against each other. But yeah, both sides were just murdering each other over whether or not black people should be allowed to vote, which I know crazy. Um, but because of this uh, and, and David's involvement in it, the family was forced to move back to Kansas. Uh, once things really started to settle down, Carrie started a local branch of the women's Christian temperance union Uh, And began campaigning for uh, Kansas to ban the sale of alcohol. She initially tried to kind of build this movement by like protesting and singing hymns inside saloons, which that I'm sure went over so well. All right. Because look, if I'm at a brewery, which would be the equivalent of a saloon these days, and someone walks in and Start singing hymns. Like, I know that they're not doing it because they just want to spread the love of Jesus. They want to do it to piss me off and annoy me and give me a bad experience. And that's when I think most people would sort of team up and be dicks about it. And it would end up being really fun because obviously this didn't work. This didn't work for Carrie. And so <clears throat> she was kind of already out of ideas. She kind of put all her eggs in that basket. So she started praying for something else to, to do. So on June 5th, 1900, God actually answered her prayers. Uh, Carrie was awakened by a voice speaking to her heart, telling her to go to Kiowa and that I will stand by you. How... Uh, Keep in mind, you know, don't forget the fact that her entire family history is littered with mental illness. It's totally fine. She's not schizophrenic. She's not hearing voices. It's God, you guys. Um, she further interpreted that those those two statements to mean that she should go and just grab whatever she could, whatever sort of weapon she could find, go to the town of Kiowa, Kansas, and just start smashing things, breaking everything. And two days later. Carrie rounded up several rocks and went down to Dobson's saloon. Uh, she walked in and she said, men, I have come to save you from a drunkard's fate. And then proceeded to just shuck rocks at every bottle of alcohol on the bar shelves with, which well, she didn't call them rocks. She called them smashers, which how do you not just call them rocks? Like, why like you just found this thing on the ground it's a rock dear you don't have to get fancy with it. you don't have to start branding things with a side note all right I this has bothered me for a really I'm gonna completely derail the entire show right now um <clears throat> why do we have to brand everything in our society like everything has to have this unique cutting edge cool sounding name like honestly, Here's, and here's why it bothers me. Um, a few months ago, <clears throat> I found uh, DiGiorno, you know, the pizza, uh, you know, the bake at home pizzas. Uh, DiGiorno came out with kind of like their version of a hot pocket. All right. Now me, I'm a terrible person. I treat my body as if it is Uh, an 86 Oldsmobile cutlass that you then put into a demolition derby. And I don't even know if Oldsmobile makes a cutlass. It just makes sense in this analogy. Um, But I enjoy a Hot Pocket. I I wanted to try what other companies were putting out there because it's probably going to be better. And guess what it was? The DiGiorno version of Hot Pocket. I haven't found them in a while. Much better, all right? Big fan. But I was looking at the heating instructions because I do care a little bit. Um, and <clears throat> they said, that, like, the the first instruction was to remove the contents from the, I can't even remember the exact name, but it was something ridiculous, like from the, you know, the, the pizza protective pouch. And it was like, Bro, that's just like a plastic wrapper that goes on literally everything. It's the same plastic wrapper that they wrap around packs of gum. It's the same plastic wrapper that goes around like the, you know, in the freezer section or like uh, in cookies, you know, or like in the, you know, in crackers and Cheez-Its and stuff. Like it was just a plastic rapper but they branded it like it was this new crazy innovative thing and I hated that it has bothered me for going on probably eight months now and I've just been stewing on it and I haven't really ever talked about it with anyone because I don't want people to think I'm crazy but this is my platform and right now I'm technically not talking to anyone now hundreds of you will end up listening to this but I don't care because I can't see your face and I can't feel your judgment right now. So there's that. Anyway, where were we? Back to the story. She's got her smashers, AKA rocks. And when the job was done there at Dobson's Saloon, she then went to two other saloons in town and, and did the same thing. And then, because it's Kansas, a few days later, a tornado <laughs> swept through Kiowa and Carrie interpreted that as like divine approval as God coming through and just kind of like finishing the job. Um, after leading another raid on a saloon in Wichita, her husband joked that she should start using a hatchet instead of rocks, which why are you encouraging your wife to use weapons of increasingly murderous capabilities? Like I get like, you want to be supportive, But discretion, my guy, like you gotta, you you can't, you gotta read the room, right? Because Carrie is a crazy person and she says that that is the most sensible thing you have said since I married you. And like, I don't know if he was joking. He could have been being completely sarcastic, you know, it's like, Hey babe, instead of going around, uh, and, and trying to find all these rocks because we do live in the plains Rock's hard to come by. I don't know, maybe just grab a hatchet or something. And then she's like, David, brilliant. I can't believe I married you. You're so smart. And so she then, and because of that, she then divorced him. Okay. And then continued attacking saloons. This woman's unhinged. Um, And with most of the rural saloons destroyed, like she's pretty successful at this. uh, Carrie went back to Kansas City, which was... Much more against the temperance movement at the time, and it and but still attacked saloons all throughout the city with her hatchets. She is attempted murdering all of these saloons, just walking through, swinging wild. Typically, just like you know, destroying the bottles of alcohol. But like you, you don't know. Like I don't know how big this hatchet was. I mean, if it's a hatchet, it's probably like a little mini handheld axe. But still, but like. Also, like, you don't know where she's going to be swinging it. And so you, you got to get out of the way. Um, she was eventually arrested and fined $500. But the sentence was suspended on the sole condition that Carrie never returned to Kansas City. Um, from 1900 to 1910, Carrie was arrested roughly 30 times for what she called her hatchetations. Cool. And. Um, Each time she paid off her fines with money that she had earned from either her anti-alcohol lecture tours or (laughs) souvenir hatchets. This woman is a branding machine, like taking rocks, calling them smashers, taking her anti-alcohol protests. We're going to call them hatchetations. All right. Oh, and hey, you want to you want to have your own little hatchetation action of your own. Here's a souvenir hatchet from, you know, uh, You know, I I carved a saloon with Carrie or something. I don't know. I'm not I'm not good with slogans. All right. I get. I, I am. I work in the marketing world. Not a great slogan guy. All right. Um, the, despite her efforts to gain worldwide fame for her anti-alcohol views, uh, the majority of people obviously not amused. All right. And I get it. Like we. I get. And here's the thing. Like alcohol. I am not a fan like I'll drink every now and then, but in general, I'm just I'm not I'm not big into it. All right. There are better things. Uh, and I know you're thinking, what about the 100th episode? Yeah, I went pretty far on that one. OK, still didn't like it. All right. Didn't like how it made me feel the next day. But, you know, I, there are better uh, things out there to make you feel good. All right. Alcohol. Alcohol. It's just what's legal here, and that sucks, but, and and so people are going to, like, hold on to that, and they're going to be very, like, very, very passionate about being able to keep that thing. Kitty, oh my god, what are you doing? (laughs) Anyway, I still love him, because he's such a cute boy, yes, 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 um, anyway, uh, Carrie Nation, she ended up dying June 9th, 1911 and was buried in an unmarked grave outside of Kansas City. Like she, obviously, uh, she would have been super happy about Prohibition. Uh, I don't know that Prohibition really was influenced by her work. She was just some crazy lady who hated alcohol uh, and made people really, uh, oh my God, Kitty. It's just gonna happen. I need to get over it. All right, our next story here is of George Metesky, who was a World War I veteran who worked as a mechanic for a subsidiary of the Consolidated Edison Company in Waterbury, Connecticut. Uh, as he worked on a boiler at the company's Hell Gate plant in New York, the boiler actually backfired and shot hot gas right into his face. And this left George disabled and unable to work. And even worse... After collecting 26 weeks of sick pay, he was let go by the company. Now, according to George, this accident uh, caused him to get pneumonia, which then turned into tuberculosis. I'm not a doctor, but I don't think that that's how that works. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's not how that works. Um, Consolidated Edison uh, also agreed with me and disputed his workers' compensation claim because he had waited too long to file it. And then after three appeals were denied, George developed this deep-seated hatred for all of Consolidated Edison's attorneys, the co-workers who actually testified against him, and just just people in general. Just just He was so burdened and burned out by the general incompetence of everyone around him that he just snapped and figuring that there was really nothing else that he could do he just started making bombs didn't have a job didn't go out and get another job no 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 we're gonna make bombs and so on november 16th 1940 george filled a brass pipe with gunpowder and laid it on a window still at a consolidated edison power plant The bomb was found before it detonated, but investigators actually believed it was a dud to begin with. Like, they don't think it was actually ever going to go off. Um, Nearly a year later, a similar looking bomb was found in the street five blocks from the Consolidated Edison headquarters, but it too was also a dud. Um, When the United States, this is what's funny to me about this story. When the United States entered World War II, uh, George had a change of heart and actually sent a letter to New York police. And the letter said, uh, I will make no more bomb units for the duration of the war. My patriotic feelings have made me decide this. Later, I will bring the Con Edison to justice. They will pay for their dastardly deeds. Like, how insane of a person are you? Like, the, the Con Edison lawyers and the, the executives, they're not going to war. If anything, great time to do it. Great time to just and and this would be you know pretty unpatriotic of him, so I get that, but just you know everyone's real distracted at that point. you could get away with a lot of stuff, but George is like, nope, I am going to stand with my countrymen and I'm not gonna make any more bombs until the war is over, and he did that he stayed true to his word, didn't plant any more bombs uh, while the war uh, was was going on. But on March 29th, 1951, George eventually was finally, like, he figured out, I think he may have used the war to actually figure out how to make an actual working bomb, uh, because he detonated a bomb at the Grand Central Terminal, but no one was injured. A month later, a bomb exploded in a telephone booth in the New York Public Library, and another bomb exploded in Grand Central Terminal in August. But, like, I, I keep using the word bomb, you know, Very loose term, all right, because, like, police just shrugged off all three of these incidents as pranks being pulled by young boys, because either, A, these bombs, quote unquote, had the explosive force of, like, a firecracker, or, like, young boys were just making bombs for fun. That was just the thing that kids did in the years following the war, and just police Eh, whatever. And so uh, seven bombs later, all right, George plants seven more bombs uh, all over New York in places like Times Square, Penn Station, other subway stations. Uh, George then detonated a bomb at love's Theater, which injured one person and marked the first time his bombs had actually done any kind of damage. Um, although George had sent several letters to police uh, about this and why he was doing it, uh, media outlets were instructed not to print them. And, you know, regardless of that, you know, word was getting around uh, and people were growing more weary of a, quote, mad bomber who was roaming the streets of New York City here. Um, George then wrote a letter to the Herald Tribune, which said, uh, you know, have you noticed the bombs in your city? Kitty, I'm trying to do a character now. Oh. But he's so cute, you guys. Uh, anyway. And my allergies are coming back. Um, <laughs> I cannot concentrate with the freaking bag in the background. All right. Anyway. But George writes a letter to the Herald Tribune. All right. Uh, and, he, and he... Oh, my God. Kitty! You lost your privileges. Jesus Christ. All right i'm i here's the thing and i say this every time i should edit all of this out not gonna do it um so yeah george writes a letter to the herald tribune and he says have you noticed the bombs in your city if you are worried i'm sorry also if anyone is injured uh but it cannot be helped for justice will be served i am not well duh and for this i will make the con edison sorry yes They will regret their dastardly deeds. I love that he hangs on the phrase dastardly deeds. Like, that's such a 1950s phrase. No one has used the word dastardly in regular conversation since like 1967. Um, Seven more bombs exploded in New York City over the next two years. Uh, And then uh, George planted a bomb in Radio City Music Hall. And this was actually the second time that he had done it. Um, And on November 7th, 1954, as 6,200 people watched Bing Crosby's White Christmas, the bomb exploded and injured four people. Um, Because of the heavy upholstery on the seats, only those who were near the bomb actually heard the explosion. Um, The injured people were also just carried out while the rest of the audience continued watching the movie, completely unaware that something had just happened. Like, that's... That's that good 1950s product creation, you know, just like thick, heavy chairs, so thick that like a bomb could go off and not everyone in the theater would know that happened. And so just like imagine going to a movie and like you're sitting up front and then, you know, (laughs) you leave the movie two hours later and it's like, yeah, a bomb went off in the top row during the movie and people were just being carted out. You had no idea. Oh, what a time to be alive. Um, George planted 10 more bombs. Like it's getting ridiculous at this point. He planted 10 more bombs in 1955. And then in 1956, a 74 year old man was injured when one of George's bombs exploded in a toilet. Uh, after the Paramount Theater was bombed for the third time, Police Commissioner Stephen P. Kennedy finally ordered the, quote, greatest manhunt in the history of the police department, which at this point seems a little late for that, right? Like, we're six years into this, five, six years into this. You know, maybe take it seriously at some point. Um, Like, and, and here's the thing. It's unclear to me why anyone including literally any living person in charge at Consolidated Edison at the time, didn't warn police about an angry former employee who might be behind all of the bombs until police showed up asking for some sort of maybe direction. Um, Police eventually narrowed down a surprisingly long list of suspects, uh, got their search warrant and then showed up at George's home in Waterbury, Connecticut on uh, January uh, 21st, 1957 which means it took over a year for police to find George Mateski after they had actually started looking for him. Um, George then led police to his workshop, showed him all of their all of his bomb materials. Um, he did, and here's what's funny: he did this while he was just wearing his pajamas. He's just like, "Oh, hey, fellas, let me show you what I've got going on." The bag—it's gonna be the death of me. I swear to God, Kitty, you're really testing me today. Can you not? Can you can you sit down, please? Can you sit down? Please. This episode is going to be an hour long. 30 minutes of it is me yelling at this cat. And dealing with my allergies. Um. So, yeah. So, he eventually did change out of his pajamas and actually change into a suit and tie because of the 50s. Uh, before they took him down to the station for further questioning. Um, George admitted to planting 32 bombs and was indicted on 47 charges, including attempted murder. Um, However, a judge declared that George was, quote, hopeless and incurable, both mentally and physically. God, story of my life. And found him incompetent to stand trial. Uh, Although authorities only expected him to live for a few months due to his tuberculosis, like he legitimately did have tuberculosis. I just don't think he got it the way he says he got it. Um, George was treated at the, uh, hospital for the criminally insane and ended up making a decent recovery. Uh, he was even released on December 13th, 1973 after doctors deemed him harmless to the public. And he truly was, he died 20 years later at age 90. All right. Our last story here is of Martin Hemeyer, who in 1992 purchased two acres of land in Granby, Colorado from the Resolution Trust Corporation, uh, which is basically this federal agency that handled assets from failed lending institutions. Kind of like a short sale, foreclosure sale sort of thing. Um, he paid $42,000 for the land and used it to build himself a muffler shop. Uh, Nearly a decade later, he then decided to sell that property to Mountain Park Concrete for $250,000. That's good appreciation. Um, And then during, but what's funny is during the negotiations, Marvin upped the price to $375,000 and then kept going up until he reached a million dollar asking price for this land. Which, how bad are you at negotiation, for this, you know, this concrete mountain park concrete, where you start at two fifty and then all of a sudden you're at a million dollars. Like that's bad negotiating. You're supposed to work it down. Um, in 2001, Granby zoning commission and the board of trustees approved the construction of the concrete plant. Despite Marvin's appeals saying that the new plant would block access to his muffler shop. Well, too bad. You sold the land to the concrete people. What did you think was going to happen? Um, After his appeals were denied, Marvin then placed junk cars all over the property and disconnected the sewer lines, opting instead to just dump sewage into an irrigation ditch near the future site of the concrete plant. Um, Despite all of that, just everything kept moving forward. Like, it's like, oh, this guy's being a dick, but, you know, this is our land now. We're going to build this concrete plant. And eventually, Marvin gave up, uh, sold his muffler shop to a trash company, and then left the property. Uh, And at that point, like Marvin snapped, right? Uh, And he said, he told someone, quote, I was always willing to be reasonable until I had to be unreasonable. Eh, debatable. Uh, Sometimes reasonable men must do unreasonable things. And and, and look, here's the thing, bud. Uh, When you start dumping raw sewage into the ditch to be a dick about things, you left reasonability behind a long time ago, all right? But for the next year and a half, Marvin just stewed inside his home, just getting angrier and angrier by the day at the cold, heartless members of the town zoning commission who just did the thing they were supposed to do after Marvin sold the land. He did this to himself. Um, he He then bought a Komatsu D-355A bulldozer. And started outfitting it with armored plates more than a foot thick over the cabin and the engine, which basically made it completely resistant to like bullets and explosives. So he's going to do something here, you guys. Not sure if you were aware of that. Uh, additionally, he mounted seven video cameras on the outside that ran live feeds to two monitors on the dashboard of this bulldozer. Um, he carved out three gun ports. One for a fifty caliber rifle, one for a three oh eight semi automatic rifle, and one for a twenty-two rifle. And then on June fourth, two thousand and four, Marvin locked himself inside of his killdozer, which he had lovingly named it, and started making his way towards downtown Granby. Uh, he plowed through the walls of his former muffler shop and the concrete plant before making his way downtown and taking out the town hall, the newspaper office that had written critical articles about him during his appeals. Uh, he bulldozed the former mayor's house and he took out a hardware store who was run by a guy that he just didn't like. Um he fired 15 rounds from the rifles at various propane tanks and transformers in hope in hopes of like creating bigger explosions but nothing happened thankfully uh, over the course of the next two hours, Marvin damaged 13 different buildings, a truck and part of a utility service center um, and like in what might be the slowest police chase ever uh, police and the SWAT team walked <laughs> behind the killdozer as it went through town like, didn't even bother using their cars, right? They were just walking behind this dude, uh, firing over 200 rounds of ammunition and throwing three small explosives at it. but I mean, it's inch thick armor on this thing didn't do any damage to it at all. Uh, Sheriff Glenn Trainer even climbed on top of the killdozer and tried to find a way inside before he was forced to jump off of it so as not to get hit by flying debris. Governor Bill Owens, uh, upon hearing about this rampage going on, considered calling the National Guard to fly. This is what's insane. This is how <laughs> I don't know. This I'm glad this is why we have checks and balances because this governor was seriously about to call in the National Guard to fly an Apache helicopter and fire a hellfire missile at this bulldozer in the middle of town. All right. Thankfully, he reconsidered after thinking about how much extra damage that sort of thing would do to the surrounding area, but he was seriously considering it. Um, This killdozer eventually got stuck inside the hardware store run by the guy that he didn't like, and authorities uh, broke inside, were finally able to break inside with an uh, an oxyacetylene torch, only to find that Marvin had already killed himself. Uh, He was the only casualty in this rampage and ultimately caused $7 million in in dollars in damages. And that is the end of today's stories. So, yeah, um, look, if you are prone to anger, maybe just chill out a little bit, you know? Um, and like I get like maybe in in the you know, I can see Carrie Nation's grievance. You know, her husband, her first husband was a raging alcoholic. Alcohol basically killed him. So, like, I can see why that's your response is, you know, well, my husband died of alcohol, so no one should ever have alcohol. It's pretty extreme, but I can see how a stupid person would arrive at that conclusion. Um, George Metesky you know, I get that one the most because, you know, your employer, you had an uh, an accident on the job. Your employer should take responsibility and, and take care of you. They didn't. They kind of screwed him over. Why you then had to plant bombs all around New York City seems a tad extreme. Um, I just bombed the power plant. That's all you got to do, dude. Uh, maybe plant, you know, figure out where the executives lives and plant bombs there. But no, you got to plant bombs all around New York city's famous landmarks. So that's weird too. Um, Marvin Heemeyer though, that's, that's the dumbest one. Just so irrationally angry of a thing that you did. You did it. You sold the land and then you were like, Oh no, I didn't want to do that. Well, too late, bud. Like live and learn. Use the money that you made from the sale and don't outfit a bulldozer with armor and go on a rampage use that to just go buy land somewhere else and just build another business but no uh gotta gotta just run a whole rampage through a town on an improvised tank so i don't know that's fun let's see what we learn today What did we learn? Number one, kitty is a bad kitty. He's a bad kitty. But God, he's so cute, though. You need to see this kitty. He's a cute little boy. Anyway, uh, number two, look, you know, things are going to, you know, screw you over, All right, Life is going to inevitably screw you over at some point, you know, and it's okay to get mad. It's okay to feel anger, but don't be a silly goose about it, all right? Just, um, you know, don't. Don't like go after the thing that screwed you over. Don't get a bunch of other people involved in your angry tirade against whatever person or establishment screwed you over. Like just go after them directly make their life miserable. Don't plant bombs and get a bunch of innocent people involved. Don't go destroying a whole town where other people are going to be impacted, you know, go after the source, all right? <clears throat> However you want to do it. But just, you know, make it personal, but don't get other people involved, all right? And that's that's it. There's only two things this week. <laughs> Next week on Our Weird World, we are looking at some mysterious murders. Uh, we're looking at uh, three different stories of just some uh, unsolved, unexplained murders. Uh, big murders, too, like like multiple serial killings, I guess. Uh, we are looking at the Villisca Axe murders, the Kaifek murders, and the story of the Halifax Slasher. And, I don't know, maybe they're all connected we'll have to just wait and find out next week all right thank you all for continuing to listen uh sorry that kitty was being a bad boy this week and distracting me and sorry that i didn't clean the episode up so that you never would have known in the first place but who cares all right thanks for listening keep telling all your friends and keep it weird